Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who reigns forevermore. Blessed be the Lord God. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who reigns forevermore. Father in heaven, now we love you. We lift your name in all the earth. May your kingdom be established in our praises as your people declare your mighty work. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty. Who reigns forevermore? Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who was 
Blessed is and is to come. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who reigns forevermore, who reigns Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own and it is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered and does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Paul can give that description of love because he can give a description of an attribute from God for his people. This is typically our love month, isn't it? February, where you're told you've got to buy cards and chocolates for people. And if you haven't, you should. But remember that love is not something we just demonstrate once a year. It is something that as a Christian is supposed to be an outworking of who we are, the outpouring of the work of God in our lives. So as we partake of the meal, guard your heart, strengthen your mind that we be a people who love and care. Now I'm going to do one thing because we got... Got to get organized here. We got one on one and one on the other. So as we've done the last couple of months, just ask that you guys come up a row at a time. Take your uh, take your time. Keep your distance on folks. That way we're not all on top of each other. And I will ask one other thing that if you would grab a wafer and a cup and then return to your seat and wait. And we will partake of the wafer and then the cup together. Make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. So take a minute. You guys just. Doing this made a little bit easier to make it simpler to see. So start at the back and make your way forward. (laughs) I know. Well, you can sneak up real quick. But that way you can actually see when it's your turn. Because if we start at the front and try to work our way to the back, you can't see when it's your turn. So this makes more sense. So go ahead and begin to, to make your way forward.
not getting ahead. Did we get everybody? All right, let's pray. Lord, as we take this wafer and this cup, we're reminded of your work, the love that you demonstrated, setting aside the reproach and the shame, embracing the salvation of your people, making a way where it had been closed, forgiving our sins, removing the iniquity, and ushering us into the throne room of the Father. Lord, we thank you for that work, and we ask that you would continue to strengthen us, that we would walk faithfully, knowing your great sacrifice, knowing that we are now clean and whole, and by your power we can walk differently. Lord, strengthen us for that walk. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. the early church when they would complete they would stand and sing and so I think that's the most appropriate thing we can do let's stand and sing our God is an awesome God he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and Love our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. From heaven above with wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. All righty. Uh, short list, because I don't have a lot of things. Again, just a reminder that if you haven't seen or run into anybody in a couple weeks, send them a message. Make sure they've been able to dig out of their driveways. They haven't been completely snowed in. <laughs> um, and keep and make sure for the rest of this week, keep a check on folks. It's going to be cold just a little bit. 
I always get a kick in my weather app when it says, limit time outdoors. Hypothermia can set in in eight minutes. And I'm like, don't remind me of that. <sighs> I could make a joke about the underworld, but I will refrain. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, it's warmer in Detroit. And I'm like, you know, there's a joke there that could be made. I'm not going to do it. We love Detroit, I, I think. Are we supposed to? I think we have to. So, um... Yeah, other than that, read your bulletin. It will do you well. Uh, we should have church council we're planning on next Sunday. So church council next Sunday, you have been warned. Uh-oh, what did I forget already? Thank you. See, I always... It's, well, that's why I told him to read the bulletin. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> um, if you would like to contribute to our benevolent fund, thank you in advance. The only thing that we will ask that you would do is... On that little table where the offering plate is, there is an envelope, uh, a stack of envelopes with bees written on them. They are set aside for the Benevolent Fund. That way it's easier. We don't miss it. So if you want to go some, if you want something to go to the Benevolent Fund, use that, and that guarantees that it will go there because you can't miss the one with the big giant bee written on it, okay? Any questions? Good. Again, that goes towards various things throughout the year, electric bills, groceries, all sorts of things. We've used it for uh, numerous things over the years, past years. And again, winter is not ending anytime soon. I don't believe what the groundhog says or doesn't say. It's a groundhog. It's an overgrown rat. So the only reason I know about this is because I watched the Weather Channel in the morning and they spent three days talking about the groundhog. Three. Like they're scientists or something. Oh, all right. Anything else I'm forgetting? All right. This is the one you can say out loud because I knew everybody knew this one, right? In Jewish money, how many shekels equal one talent? And everybody went, well, duh, 3,000. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Nobody knew that. Yeah, you gotta you gotta read you gotta get the Bible with the notes in the bottom that tells you how many things. Now, why why did I put that in there? Well, because I keep a tally of which questions I've used and that gap was just bugging me because I skipped it a month ago, and so I finally just had to stick it in there. But two, it actually does teach us something about this world. Does how many shekels equal a talent affect anything in your world day in and day out? No. Has God changed? No. Culture comes, culture goes. Words and languages come and they go, governments come and they go, and God abides forever. And this is a fun little example of this. Is they, nobody uses this standard of money anymore. And there's probably going to come a time when no one will, somebody's going to look back and be like, how many quarters are a dollar? And they'll be looking up in the footnotes of a book somewhere to figure it out. And you know what will be true then? That God is still on his throne. He is still ruling and reigning, and Christ is still the way to the throne of grace. So. Fun little example that worlds change, or at least our world changes, but God does not. Now, do not say this one out loud. And I know you're going to be tempted. Make sure I... You in the back, don't say it out loud. Abraham pleaded with God not to destroy what city? Alright, again, reason for the question is the important part. I know you know it, don't say it. I know you know it, don't say it. The reason for the question is the important part. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. There you go. Anything else I'm forgetting? Going once, going twice, and I will get out of the way so that we may continue on. There's an end of song. You skipped the song. Hymnal. Oh. 
<laughs> it's Bill's fault. <laughs> One time is not mine. I didn't do it to And it's time. never mine. <laughs> Keep on the firing line, Johnny Cash. That was a big oops, Bill. (laughs) You're in the battle for the Lord and right. Keep on the firing line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight. Keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must face. If we die of fighting, it is no disgrace. Goward in the service, he will find no place. So keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run, nor even lag behind. You would win for God and the right. Just keep on the firing line. God will only use the soldier he can trust. Keep on the firing line. If you wear a crown and bear the cross, you Keep on the firing line. Life is but to labor for the master dear. Help to banish evil and spread good cheer. Help to banish you run over here. So keep on the firing line. You must fight be brave against all evil, never run, nor even lack behind. If you would win for God in the right, just keep on the firing line. When we get to heaven, brother, we will bless. Keep on the firing line. How we praise the Savior for the call we had. Just keep on the firing line. When we win the souls that we have helped to win, leading them to Jesus and fathom sin. Good to shout a welcome, we will all march in. So keep on the firing line. Must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run, nor even lag behind. If you should win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line.
Now, this next one is going to be a new praise song, but we figured uh, if you know it, sing along. If you uh, don't, uh, learn it because we're going to do it for the next few weeks to try to get in your head. There's an endless song, it goes in my soul. I hear the music ring. And though the storm may come, I am holding on to the rock I clean. How can I keep from seeing? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart one I will lift my eyes in the darkest night, for I know my Savior lives. I will walk with you, knowing you'll see me through, and sing the song you give. How can I keep from singing? your praise. How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart want to sing. I can sing in the troubled times, sing when I win, sing when I lose myself, sing I can sing when you pick me up, sing cause you there. I can sing all you to pray. I can sing with my last breath, sing for I know that I'll sing when you sing and the strings around the throne. How can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and it makes 
my heart. I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart. I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart want to see. Remember, be ready. I like how Denny had to tell us it was Bill's fault, as if the, oh, didn't give it away immediately. <laughs> uh, that is a helpless feeling when you mess it up and you're like, oh, and then there is no worse feeling than having a song in your head and then having to then get another song in your head. Because I knew that's what was killing you right there. You're like, I can't. If you don't believe me, try to just listen to a song and then try to sing something completely different without music. And your brain is just going to like twitch for a minute. <laughs> that is half the fun right there. So the joys of it. So I said it was going to, I warned in Sunday school it was going to be one of those days. I just didn't think it was contagious. So I apologize. Yeah, I, I think about 15 times this morning in Sunday school I went, if I can get my brain to work and think of the word that I want, or I thought of the word and then I couldn't write the word I was thinking of. So, you have been warned it is liable to be one of those days, which means maybe just 20 minutes of nap time. Because you can take a nap, pretend like it didn't happen, and, and start all over again. So, today we are finally leaving Egypt. We are going straight out of Egypt. Well, well not like straight out, but we're getting out, out of Egypt. Now, to set the stage for today, God is leading his people. And all God's people said, duh, we know that. Because God is leading his people, we know that he is leading them the best way. So again, we can say, duh. But God is not leading them on the most direct, shortest, and easiest route. To which we say, duh. <laughs> That's part of what we start on this morning. So God leading, Israel following, and the shenanigans that will ensue. So short section today, but I promise there is a lot in there. So Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. 
And yes, like I said, that's a whole Sunday right there, I promise. Enjoy the short section today. Um, next week, we're going to try to tackle the entirety of chapter 14. So, like Terry said, you've been warned. So today, we're in small chunks. Next week, drinking through the fire hose, so be prepared. So let's rewind back to the beginning. When Pharaoh had let the people go, all right, time out. I cannot allow that to stand just like it is. He didn't let them go. He literally drove them out. We saw this in Exodus 6. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of the land. Now, the NASB does this here. The NASB did this in chapter 3. You had this in your head, and it's Charlton Heston's fault, right? He, he walks in and says what? Let my people go. You, know, you just have it stuck in your head that way. It's okay. It's not a great translation by the NASB, but we will allow it. It happens. Remember, though, this is not Pharaoh finally acquiescing. This is Pharaoh being completely broken down and telling the people, get out. I don't care where you go. Just get out. You know, it's the old joke we had in a restaurant when it was closing time. You ain't got to go home, but you got to get up out of here. Same idea. Now, question that has to be asked. When confronted with the judgment and power of God, when the depth of your own depravity and sinfulness has been brought before you, how should the person act? I think we have a good example of this if you go to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Paul has been imprisoned, he is there with Silas, and they are praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners are listening to them. By the way, um, for everybody worried about what's going to happen in the future in our country, in whatever country, if you're getting ready for the prison camps, here's a good example. When you get there, start learning your Christian music now. Throughout Christian history, one of the great testimonies of the martyrs of the faith and those imprisoned has been the reading and singing of songs of praise to God, specifically the Psalms. But you know what? Any good song will do as long as it's rightly praising God in this instance. So they are praising, they are singing songs, and the prisoners are listening, and suddenly there came a great earthquake. So the foundation of the prison house was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. All right. You're in jail. I don't care how you got there or why you got there. Earthquake hits, chains fall off, doors open. What happens next? <laughs> you ain't got to go home, but you got to get up out of here. And how quickly are they all leaving? Yeah. It's like, wait, wait there, there were people here a second ago. Now, keep in mind Roman world. The Romans had a great way of ensuring that their guards, prison keepers, and wardens, again, I'm telling you, it's, it's a day, wardens, guards, soldiers, they would make sure they did their job. You know one of the ways they did that? If you were a soldier or a guard and you were in charge of this person, so you are to take this person over to that prison and we're going to execute this guy. The way we made sure you did your job is if you show up without him, we're killing somebody. Okay? Either show up with the guy we're supposed to kill or, yeah, you know how the rest of this goes. So if you were in charge of a prison, you took your job very, very seriously. So, doors open, chains unfastened, and the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open. <sighs> and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. At this point, better me do it than let the Romans do it, because at least I'll be quick about it. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. So he called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
why are all the prisoners still here? They shouldn't be here. Something else is going on. And after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In other words, what would compel a man to have such peace in this world, to have such an understanding of what is going on around him, that you would stay in prison? I want a part of that. See, that's what should happen when confronted with the power of God and the depth of your own sinfulness. Because you know what that jailer's thinking. If I'm you, you know where I am? <laughs> Whatever sound effect you would like, that didn't happen. Now, that should be what's going on. It is not. Remember this lesson for next week. We won't get back to it this week, but remember that lesson for next week. Remember everything that Pharaoh has seen, everything that he has heard, everything that he's been told to him, and all that he has experienced. And then realize the depravity of sin and why our consistency in living and testimony to a dark world is so important. But that's next week. This week, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. To which we should all say, God is really, really, really smart. Which probably the dumbest thing I'll say out loud all day, right? That I have to say that. But this is the wisdom of God in action, because what did the people actually do? Numbers, chapter 14. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, by the way, this is at the report of the spies coming back from the land, saying, I don't know if we're strong enough to take the land that God has promised to give us. Just process that statement in your mind for a minute. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. The people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The minute they saw war, what did they want to do? Yeah, God knows what he's doing. Now again, what should be the reaction of a people when confronted with the power of God in light of their own sinfulness? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Not, you know, slavery, forced labor, our kids being thrown into the Nile. It wasn't that bad. See, and I say it that way because nobody would say it like that. But when they say, let's go back to Egypt, what are they asking to return to? When you wonder throughout human history how people have been able to tolerate the things that they have tolerated and dealt with the things that they have dealt with, you are capable of lying to you in ways that you have not even thought about. And the things that people can convince themselves of and how deeply we can secure ourselves in our own delusion is a power that is almost unrivaled in this world. This is why I constantly remind you what changes the hearts and minds of men. God. God and God alone. We will believe very dumb things, and we will believe them to the point that we will convince ourselves and spend our entire lives trying to convince others of the stupidity of which we have convinced ourselves. Pharaoh's going to do it. Israel did it. Humanity down through the ages has done it. Remember the warnings of a sinful world, Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, 
his divine nature. They have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They know. They've lied to themselves. And you're going, but they seem to be convinced. They are convinced of their own delusion. What changes the hearts and minds of men? God does. So, with all of that said, verse 18. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. (sighs) We have work to do. Because we have just encountered our second problem with this text. And the reason I say it's our second problem is because I skipped the first one because I didn't want to cover it yet. I wanted to cover it here. So go back one slide, Elena. Go back to verse 17. Let's see. Is anybody industrious? Can they see what the problem might be in that verse? You probably can't. I'll read it, though. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. See, if you listen to the History Channel and modern secular historians, they will tell you that that is what is known as an anachronism. Now, I have to tell you this story so I can tell you the next story. An anachronism is when you read something from your time or history into another time or history. So if you like a great example of this, if you find old um, medieval churches in Europe, they will have murals and paintings and stained glass windows that tell the story of Scripture because most of the people in the middle, well, in the high Middle Ages didn't read as far as unless you were, you know, part of the clergy or a businessman or anything like that. If you were just a, a serf or a farmer, you didn't read typically. So one of the ways they would teach the, the masses was through pictures. So when you go to some of these churches, you'll see pictures of David coming into Jerusalem, you know, with the ark conquering in battle. And how will you see David coming into Jerusalem? You will see him on a horse with a sword in his armor. Why? Did David have a horse and a sword and armor like that? No! But a middle, I'm sorry, medieval, middle ages king would have ridden out in armor, with a helmet, with a shield, with a banner, all of these things. So when you try to explain this is what the king, how would the people know what the king looked like? They would display him as a king that they would be familiar with. This is what is known as an anachronism. Your ideas taken back into history. Historians will tell you that the Philistines here are anachronistic. The Philistines aren't going to exist for another couple hundred years. If you start with secular history, Genesis chapter 10. Mizraim became the father of Ludim. By the way, Mizraim is the uh, father of Egypt. If you were a Hebrew, you would not have called it Israel. You would not have called it Egypt. You would have called it Mizraim. Mizraim became the father of Ludim and Ananim. And again, if you're looking for names for kindergarten, you know, looking for you know, baby names, not going not gonna to be too many Luhims and Ananims running around in a couple of years. Just, just throwing that out there. And Naphtuhim, that's a really good one. And Pathrusim and Kalsluhim. <gasps> From which came the Philistines. Had to read you all of that so I could read you this. Philistines don't just crop up in Exodus. They are explained to you and their ancestry all the way back in the table of nations of Genesis chapter 10. They are not new. They are old. Now, this is why I wanted to give you this lesson here and not cover it here. So now back to verse 18. When reading your Bible and you have questions or a a controversy comes up, where do you start looking for the answer? This is what we call the analogy of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Our starting point is with our Bible. I will never forget Dr. John Salehammer, a funny little man. He has now gone on to be with the Lord, who was my hermeneutics professor at seminary. 
I say he was a funny little man because he used to come in and lecture uh, an entire hour class off of a, a post-it note. He would write his little notes on a post-it, and then those would be his bullet points, and he would put them on his podium, and that was the whole class. And his, I'll never forget the day in class one of his students looked at him and said, all right, so let's just say I'm reading my Bible and I get to something I don't understand. What do I do? And he said, well, since Scripture is clear and it's understandable, then the problem is with you, so read it again. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was so glad I didn't ask a question that day. He goes, okay, but I read it again. What do I do? Read it again. Okay, but after I've read it again, what do I do? Well, remember, Scripture is clear. The problem is with you. Read it again. And we went on for about another minute like this. He goes, all right, finally, I've read it again and again and again and again and again, and I don't get it. He goes, all right, well, fine. Did you read the sentence before it? Did you read the sentence after it? Then you read the paragraph before it. You read the paragraph after it. You read the chapter before it and the page after it. Find where you are in history and read the book chronologically before it and the book chronologically after it. The problem is with you and with me. The problem is not in Scripture. Remember this always because if you do not, the secular world will twist and contort you in ways that you cannot imagine. If you'd like a good example of this and how you can have fun with words, go look up the problem of the hotel room and the $30. Yeah. It's an easy solution. The money doesn't ever get lost, but you'll see what happens when you change wording around. I'm not going to try to go through it because, and yeah, yeah, no, 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 we're not going down the road. I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> yeah, we got to beat the Lutherans to lunch. That's how this works. That's always how this works. So we start there because now becomes your second problem. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. Oh. History Channel loves this one because they'll look at you and say, well, you know, the Hebrew is very unclear here, and it's not really the Red Sea, to which I would say, maybe. Because you could translate it Red Sea, or you could translate it as the Sea of Reeds or the Sea of Rushes, which, you know, you know what a rush is, those little vine, not vine things, those little grass things that grow out of shallow water. And so it's not really that big, deep body of water that, you know, we don't talk about because it's not actually there. So, and they're right. You can translate it as Red Sea. You can translate it as Sea of Reeds. You know which one the secularist prefers. Can you guess why? See, if they figure if they can get rid of the Red Sea concept, they can explain that whole parting thing a lot easier. They fail to explain how if we're only dealing with like a foot of water, we drowned an entire army, but that's a different discussion altogether. <laughs> they always like to skip that part. We never get that far. Now, where do we start? Scripture. Again, I don't know many things, but we are in Exodus 13, and I know that Exodus 10 comes before Exodus 13. Why do I bring that up? Because Exodus 10, 19 tells us this. The Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea, and not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. So once again, if I'm supposed to believe this is a little swampland, I'm supposed to believe that locusts covering every field, house, person, cat, dog, cow, and sheep in the land of Egypt was drowned in an ankle-deep swamp. I may have been born at night, but guess what? It wasn't last night. Now, I know. Now, why, so why, as Christians, do we universally translate this as Red Sea? And the answer to that question is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It was completed somewhere between the 3rd and 2nd century B.C. 
So by the time Jesus is around and Paul is walking the earth and all of that, the Septuagint has been around for somewhere between three and four hundred years. It is the pretty much accepted Bible of the day. So outside of the synagogue readings, if someone was going to be reading the Old Testament in Jesus' day or in Paul's travels, they would not have been reading the Hebrew more than likely. They would have been reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Why do I say this? Because with the priest's function and with the rise of the Pharisees and the, the, uh, the scribe class in ancient Israel, we have a preservation of understanding and meaning. The Septuagint, because Greek is much more precise than Hebrew, Hebrew is not precise at all. I mean, how do you get read and read out of the same word? They do. It just depends on where you put the vowel points and how you move it around. It, it's, it's Hebrew, there are people who love it, and those people are very weird to me. It is a miserable language to study if you are not really, really into it. Greek is not that way. Greek is very precise. It has pinpoint accuracy on most things, and we utilize it to clean up problems. One such problem I've mentioned before, I mention it every year at Christmas, is Isaiah chapter 14, or Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. See, the History Channel will also look at you and say, well, the Hebrew there for uh, virgin isn't really virgin, because it could be virgin or it could be young woman, to which we would say, duh. When Isaiah was writing, it was basically assumed that young women were virgins, therefore the term became interchangeable. Now, by the time the Septuagint rolls around, we're starting to get a little differentiation in language. Greek is much more precise. It has a word for young woman or young maiden, and it has a word for virgin. So when they translated Isaiah 7.14, guess which one they use? They use the word for virgin. So yes, we could have Sea of Reeds, we could have Red Sea. When the Septuagint rolls around, you know what they translated it as? Red Sea. No question, no doubt, pinpoint. Why? Because it was universally understood in Israel that when God is parting the sea, he is actually, wait for it, parting the sea. When he is leading them to this body of water, what this connects us to is the history of Israel and how they would have understood this. This is important. Your Bible helps interpret. Then you go to history. We can see in our Bible that this has already been mentioned with the locusts, but we can then see from history that no one until the 19th century in Germany thought it was anything other than the Red Sea. I have very few hard and fast rules about Bible interpretation, but the ones that I have are set in stone. One of them is this. If you are the first person in a few thousand years to come up with something, you know what you are? You're wrong. You're just wrong. So when you look at me and say, I found this in the Bible, and you tell me what it is, if I can't find anyone in the last 3,000 years who found that, you're wrong. Because my assumption in life is not everyone who came before me is a moron. <laughs> not everyone, right? So if you look in the Old Testament and go, look, look, nobody's ever found this before, then you need to think that through because they've been studying this book for, you know, a couple thousand years at this point. And if you're the first person to come up with it, you've got a problem. Likewise, when you're the first person to come with something from the New Testament and go, no one's ever thought of this before. There's probably a reason nobody ever thought of it before, because it's probably dumb if we dig far enough into it. The, you want a good defense against cults and, and weird Christian offspring groups that will lead you straight to hell? If they just look at you and go, well, no one came up with this until 1842. Run. Run. Like, we're the Watchtower Society. We came up with this in 1918. Run. Joseph Smith claims in 1826 he was sitting outside, you know, under a tree, and the angel which this sounds like it's a bad joke, but the angel Moroni, which is spelled moron with an I, 
came, I'm serious, I'm not making this up. But the angel came to him and told him about how he could find the plates in the ground, and then he could look with the stone in a hat and translate them. And then he did. And then he claims to have lost the stone. And then they got it back. And then they asked him to translate it again because the translation was lost, and it wasn't the same translation, even though he was supposedly reading it. See, when you're the first guy to pull this up, you know what everybody should have been doing? No. No. Yeah, look into your history on some world religions. It's entertaining. So no, Red Sea. So from this point forward, we're going to treat it like the Red Sea because this is how the Bible treats it. This is how Israel treated it. This is how the church has treated it because there's no legitimate evidence before somebody in Germany found a wild hare somewhere he shouldn't have found it and said, hey, maybe it wasn't the Red Sea. And everyone didn't look at him and go, dude, just sit down and be quiet. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. All right, back on track, back on the highway. Why are we going this way? I know I've thrown a lot at you between the time I said this and now, but why are we going the way that we're going? What are we avoiding? We're avoiding war. If we don't go this way, we might go fall into battle. And if we fall into battle, the people are going to panic and turn to Egypt. So we're going a different way to avoid the war. Who made that decision? God. So if God says we go that way, we go to war. We go this way, we don't go to war. We're going this way, we're not going to war. Who knows what martial array means? It means military organization, which means Israelites are traveling prepared for what? Don't you love that faith? Isn't that just like awesome right there? God is telling you we're going this way to avoid war. You know what we should do? We should get our swords and stuff and be ready for war just in case. What do you mean just in case? Christian, this is awesome news for us. If God can save these people, <laughs> there's hope for me yet. And this connects me to my favorite, one of my favorite. I, I gotta say, this might actually be my favorite New Testament story. This might actually be. Because it, it makes this point so clear. Jesus goes up the mountain, transfiguration comes down the mountain, there's a demon-possessed boy and his father there, and they're, the, 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 the disciples cannot cast out the demon, and the, Jesus gets involved. And so Jesus asks him, and the father says, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out, I believe! Help my unbelief! Which one is it, man? Do you believe or don't you? And the answer is, yes. He's there because he hopes Jesus can do something, but let's be honest, there's a part of the back of his brain saying what? Eh, I don't know. Again, this is good news for us. Your doubts do not separate you from the love of God. They don't. We like to think that they do, but they don't. Congratulations, welcome to the planet. You too are human when you start to wonder. This is again why I tell you, how do I interpret scripture? What are my tools in my toolbox that enable me to do this? I don't want to tell you you should never have doubts. What I want to do is when someone asks you a question or when you have a doubt or when you have messed up and watched the History Channel and they have given you a doubt because that's what they do best, you have a way to answer the question. I've said this before, I will say it again, I will go to my grave believing this. Christianity is a thinking religion. You are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
so that you will know, walk, and test the things of this world. We can't do that if we just go, well, no, 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 pastor said it, I believe it. Please realize that is not good enough. And I'm saying that as the guy who you're trying to, to give credit to. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not clever enough. That's why I give you the tools in the toolbox. That's why I give you the cross-references in the back of your bulletin so that you can look into this so that you know because I'm going to stand before God one day and say, this is what I did and this is why I did it because this is what I thought. I don't want you to stand before him and say, this is what I did and this is why I believe it because that's what he said. That, no, no, no. You need to know. You need to be grounded and built up because I don't get to walk with you everywhere. Half the time, my good faith doesn't get to walk with me everywhere. And that's a failing of humanity and the breakdown of this world. And so you need to be able to know, how do I find that chain that's connected to my anchor so I can get back to that solid rock in this world is sending me here, tither, and yon, and I have no idea what I'm doing. You have to be grounded and anchored, and that involves knowing and trusting, even as little as it is. And part of that encouragement is, if God can save these people, then when I have questions and I wonder and I go digging for answers, he's still working. Because you know why you're digging for answers? The Holy Spirit's kicking you in the butt going, keep going. You're not there yet. You'll find it. Keep going. That's why years ago when I gave a um, college student a, for years we gave every high school graduate, every elementary school graduate, every college graduate a Bible in church. And I got to the point where I looked at one of these college graduates who had grown up at our church. And it's like, we gave her a Bible when she graduated kindergarten. And we gave her another one when she went to the sixth grade. And we gave her another one when she went to high school. And we gave her another one when she graduated high school. You know what this kid doesn't need? Kid doesn't need another Bible. So I got one of those reference books that has all these, like, like, you see all these study notes in my Bible? I found a book of just those study notes. I gave her that. Because I'm like, you got enough Bibles. Hopefully you read them. Because if you read them, you'll eventually have a question. And what I put on the front of the book, I, I wrote, I said, because all the questions have been answered and all the challenges have been met. Because when you read it and you get to the place, I don't understand what this means. Somebody's done the work. They've written it down. They've helped. Go dig. Don't be afraid of digging. The one thing we are not as Christians is afraid of looking for the truth because we have it and we stand upon it. Verse 19. So Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. This is cool. This is just cool. Genesis 50. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. See, when Jacob died, what did they do? They had a big funeral procession. They went back to Israel, and they buried him there. Why didn't they do that for Joseph? Well, there's some slavery coming, and there's some hard times. And you know what's sitting in the land of Goshen? A coffin filled with Joseph's bones. And you know what that's a reminder of? That God keeps his promises. Joseph believed it. He made you believe it. He made you promise to believe it. The other reason, what is Joseph's main function in this world? Like, why do we care about the story of Joseph as Christians? What is he a picture of? This rejected son, forsaken of his people, cast aside who becomes their deliverer. What does that sound like? That's the work of Christ, isn't it? But it's also the work of 
Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ, including a picture of resurrection. Joseph's dead. He's not coming back. But he's still longing for what? A day when his people will realize their promises. A day when the people will be returned. A day when the nation will be born again in a new land. That's why you see the promises and the connection. That's why you see Joseph left. It's a testimony and a hope. Joseph has a hope of something beyond this. He has a hope of a land and a fulfillment and a promise given by God. You see this in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand. Peter is quoting David here. So that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What's David looking towards? Looking for a kingdom, not his kingdom, a future kingdom, not his life but a future life, a future promise, a recognition that what God has lost, or rather what we have lost with our separation from God, he will ultimately restore. You get a small picture of that here. So it continues. They set out, verse 20, they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, if you would like to have some fun with the uh, secular scholar, ask them where these places are and watch his head explode because we have absolutely no idea. We can guess we can hope, we can assume, but we don't know where these places are. The beauty of it is to quote the great theologian Dwayne Johnson, it doesn't matter. And no, I can't do the voice, but I can do the eyebrows. So, so there we go. What is the purpose of this? How are they going? This is, this is one of those un, unloved sections of scripture because we just kind of gloss over it. But what life are they living now? They're leaving houses in Egypt. I don't care if they're in slavery. Where are they now living? In tents. They're camping. Yay, let's go camping in the desert. Doesn't that sound like fun? No, no, it doesn't sound like fun. It sounds awful. It sounds like sand in places sand does not belong. But that is what they are now doing. Why is God doing this? Why is he taking the long way around? Why is he forcing them to live this life? Because he's teaching them something. Leviticus 23 codifies it for them. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, or tents, depending on how you translate it. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in tents when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's a reminder. One of their national festivals that they will go to Jerusalem for every single year was the Feast of Tabernacles, which could be translated the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents where the people would erect these temporary structures and hang out in them for seven days as a reminder of Israel wandering, wandering in the wilderness. Why should Israel be reminded that they come from a nation that wandered in the desert? Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Camping can be fun. And if you do it wrong, it can be terrifying. <laughs> Imagine being delivered from Egypt and being in the middle of a barren wilderness, undefended, unsecured, and you're living in a tent. What are you confronted with immediately? Just how helpless 
and about to die, I truly am. Why is Israel alive? Because of God. Why is Israel safe? Because of God. Why is Israel secure in their existence? Because of God. The reason why they'll celebrate every year to remind them of this is to remind them that their provision, their safety, their security, and their lives are not grounded in themselves, their riches, their fields, their flocks, their temple. They are grounded in God. Christian, nothing has changed. What the world has done a really good job of is removing the fear of life. I am convinced, and will go to my grave convinced, that the majority of what we have seen for the last year is because for the first time in a lot of people's lives, they were confronted with something that they had hidden from themselves. I mean, up until, up until maybe 100 years ago, when Grandma died, you know what you did with her? You put her in the front room. <laughs> That's why if you go to old houses, my, my, my mother-in-law lives in a house that was built in the originally 1890s, and you can see where she's taken... Be, uh, walls out and put beams in to actually make modern rooms. Like, when we build a house now, it's like, there's no walls except for the bathroom and the bedroom. And everything else is straight through. But if you go into old houses, you ever notice that all the rooms are like the size of a closet? Because they all had a different function. You slept in that one, you ate in that one, you read in that one, you, you hung out with, you entertained people in that one. You, the reason, one of the reasons they did this, if you built an old house, almost every house built in the early 1900s going back had what was known as a sitting room in the front. That was the one that you weren't allowed to be on the furniture in. And when someone in the family died, the funeral home didn't keep them. You did. They'd set them up, put them in the casket, and put them in the sitting room. That way when people would come over to pay their condolences, we didn't have to go to the funeral home for visitation. We just did it right there. There's a blessing in that. Yes, it's weird, but there's a blessing in that. Can you hide it? Can you pretend it doesn't exist? No. What do we do now? Half the time, do we even have a visitation? Do we even have a casket a lot of times? What do we do now? We cremate. We get a little urn back, and we put up some pictures, and we act like nothing has changed, and we're not reminded constantly. I think, again, part of the uh, blessing of 2020 was that we had large swaths of people suddenly going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. We're all going to die. And you know what they realized? They had no category for that in their world. And that's why you saw the panic, and that's why you saw the demands of safety, and that's why you've seen every, that's why we all bought toilet paper, like apparently we were never going to see it ever again. Because people who are scared do weird things. Didn't make any sense. Didn't have to make any sense. People were frightened, and that was enough. Christian, this is one of the reasons why we're to be set apart. We're not afraid. We don't fear. We're anchored. Christ has taken the judgment away. Therefore, there is nothing at death that I fear because in Christ I am secure. In Christ I have access to the throne of God. In Christ I don't have to worry. I close my eyes here and I open them in glory. There's nothing to be afraid of. Look, doesn't mean everything here is going to be pleasant, but there's nothing here that can take that work away from me. And that's the reminder that I have to have. That's one of the reasons why Israel is going to do this. They're going to be reminded year in and year out that no, you are as helpless as helpless can be. And it's good for you. It's a good reminder. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Be reminded. Look, don't be that weird goth kid from high school, okay? Nobody's asking you to do that. You don't have to. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I feel attacked. Your hair's not purple enough. That's why I went there. <laughs> hey, hey, look, and I say this as someone who still has a full-length leather trench coat in my closet that I look really awesome in. 
At one point, I messed up and I had my hair completely buzzed, and I had the uh, the black rim, black wraparound sunglasses, and I made the mistake of wearing them into the commuting student lounge at college with my with my leather coat on. And uh, one of my friends, Sean, who was a Marine, stopped. He goes, "Stop, stop, 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 guys! Come here, come here, come here!" And he stopped. He goes, "Don't take the glasses off." I got the black glasses. He goes, "Look, look! It's Terminator's mini me." <laughs> we are not friends. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not telling you to be the goth kid obsessed with death, but what I am telling you to do is to be be cognizant of the place that we occupy in this world. And you know what? When you're reminded how small and fragile you are, rejoice. And this is why we don't think like this, is because we want to hide it. But you know what? When you wake up and go, oh, I'm getting old. Yeah, <laughs> especially when it's this cold out, nothing works. Like you got to take that five minute move around to kind of get everything lubed and greased up so it works properly. You know what we don't ever say? Oh, thanks be to God that I'm getting old. Nobody says that. You know why? Because when we're getting old, we're reminded of what we've lost. No, you get old to remind you of what you have gained in Christ. You get old to remind you that this place is temporary and broken, but there is coming a kingdom and a world that is eternal, and it is good. So, yeah, when you go, I can't see that. Hold on, let me get my glasses. Thanks be to God that I need glasses, because I'm reminded there will come a day when I will see again without these wretched things. Thanks be to God there will come a day when I will jump again and not have to worry about whether or not my knees are going to shatter in 27 different directions. Thanks be to God I will be able to pick up something again and not sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies when the milk has been poured in when I do it. See, these are the reminders that there is something better coming because this is not it verse 21 the lord was going before them at a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light all right hold up why why those two things i mentioned this a couple weeks ago mentioned again here genesis chapter 15 it came about when the sun had said that it was very dark behold remember abraham is supposed to be cutting a covenant with god so he has laid out the animals, and he was waiting for God to show up so they could walk through the animals together. Abraham doesn't get to cut this covenant. God will cut it. So behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Early on in this book, you saw Exodus 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. See, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire is meant to get Israel to think back. How did Moses get here? What did he see? What brought him to us? What did Abraham know? How was the covenant of God cut? Meant to connect the dots on all of these things. Remember, real people doing real things in real places, but who is the overall author of our story? God. And he is building a kingdom, telling a story that connects. It's not like there's stuff that happens in Genesis, and then there's stuff that happens in Exodus, and then there's that Leviticus, the number of stuff that we all skip, and then Moses and Deuteronomy, and then we get to the good stuff again in Joshua. No. They all connect. They are all part of the same story woven together so that God can teach us who he is and what he's doing on behalf of his kingdom. So remember, no accidents in the universe run by God. Now there's also a practical reason. He gives them these two things that they might travel by day and night. That's unusual. In this world, you don't travel at night. It's just not safe. There's animals. There's people who, in most instances, are worse than the animals. You can't see what you're going. I mean, think about, you know, we, we lose this. How many of you have ever been, like, out in the mountains or the desert at night? Where it's actually dark. 
Like, we turn our lights off now, and it's like, oh, look, like, from my house, I, I, you know, I'm a couple miles north of Byron, but you know when I turn off all the lights at night, you know what I can see? I can see Rockford. <laughs> and, it's like, and, if, and if you go out at night, it's like there's the glow that is Rockford, and then there's a gap, and then on the, on the, on the um, if I look south and east, I can see the little glows that are Davis Junction and Stillman Valley, and then there's Byron, and I can actually see the little glow that is Oregon. And you can see them all, and then if you look, you can see where Winnebago is, and you and you can just see them all. It's not dark. We we don't have that anymore. In this world, when the sun went down, you can start counting constellations. You can start counting, you know, planets that we can't even contemplate right now unless you have a telescope because it's not dark enough, or you get about six, seven thousand feet up in the air. It was dark, 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 dark. You might fall into a hole, and I'm not kidding. Like you, you could not see rivers. You, you could not see pits, cliffs. You have no idea. You don't travel at night. Well, why does God get to travel at night? Psalm 139. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. He's connecting. He's putting these things together. He is leading. He is securing. You don't move an army at night. Israel is an army. A million or more people. You don't try to travel that at night. God can. God can see them. God can see where he's going. God knows where they all are, and he will lose none of them. Christian, none of that has changed. None of that has changed. Hebrews chapter 6. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. See, we're not secure because we're smarter than everybody else. We're not secure because we're better than anybody else. We're secure because God is smarter, stronger, and better than anything else. And so that's why it ends. Verse 22, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So he's leading his people. And all God's people said, well, that's what he does. So, duh and amen. Or if you prefer amen and duh, but usually the amen goes on the end there. This is what he's always done. This is what the apostles taught. Ephesians 5. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's faithful walking. Grounded in the truth, watching our ways, praising God, admonishing and encouraging one another so that we all get to the same place. That's what the apostles taught. Not a thing has changed. Not a single, solitary thing. First Thessalonians 4, Paul tells you the same thing. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessels in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he see, he who rejects is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Kind of covers it. Live honestly. Live faithfully. Don't cheat. Don't lie. It's almost, almost like there's commandments like that. 
that they can be applied and that they work themselves out. And that if we walk away from that, we're not walking away from each other. We're walking away from God who has loved us and changed us. This is why we think. Now, this is why my favorite doxology of Scripture comes in. Because if you are tempted by this world, you will be tempted to think, well, that was good for them. It might be good now, but how do I know it's secure? And that's where Jude comes in. To him who was able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and honor before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Good doxology finishes with an amen. See, it's a reminder. God who has called you is the God who strengthens you, is the God who preserves you, is the God who will see you through. doesn't matter whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, he will see it through. It's part of the lesson of the Exodus, and you're seeing it right here in action. He is taking them out. He has demonstrated his power. They mostly missed it, because they're like, all right, we're going to go this way and avoid battle. Let's get the swords and walk like we're ready for battle. <laughs> and yet he still leads them. And not only does he lead them, but he leads them in a, way, in a way that reminds them of his promises, and he leads them in a way that reminds them that there is no time that by his hand they will be unsafe. They can travel in the day, they can travel in the night, they can travel through the wilderness, they can travel through anything because God is with them. This is why the psalmist can say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because God is with him. Christian, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed a little bit. What's changed is our remembering, our thinking. And this is why I started out to say we have to be reminded of how good he is and how gracious he can. Because if he can do it for these people, there's hope yet that he can do it for me and strengthen me. And if he doesn't forsake these people, but actually leads them, then he's not forsaking me and he'll actually lead me. And no matter the fear, no matter the worry, God is good, his path is right, and he will bring me to where he has called me to go. And that is a secure, eternal kingdom where all of these little reminders can go away and I can rejoice in the salvation that God provides. Let's pray. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the reminders that you give us, for the testimonies of Scripture, how they show us who you are and all that you have done. We ask that you would strengthen us. We know the path that you lead us down is good. But we also know the path that you lead us down is not always pleasant. And we ask that when we are in those times that you strengthen us, that you, that you gird our faith, lifting us up to walk faithfully in you, trusting that the path leads to where you have promised, that you will not forsake and you will not forget, and that we as your people will rejoice in eternity. In Christ's name we pray. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his court with praise. I will say this a day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. He 
has made me glad. I will rejoice, cause he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his court with praise. I will say this a day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gate with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his court with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Okay, count suddenly. A um, couple of things, just a reminder, if you haven't seen anybody, remember, give them a call. Just keep check on folks, especially in this uh, lovely weather that we're getting. Yeah, I, I'll call Vern, because Vern, Vern was on his way, and then he said he was waiting on a ride because his truck wouldn't start. So I don't know if they didn't pick him up or they picked him up and left him on the side of the highway somewhere, and I'll see him frozen on my way home. But um, reminder, church council next Sunday, and then last thing real quick as an announcement to give to you guys, Denny and Debbie have said that they would like to join the crazy train and become members of our church. <laughs> so I'm giving you that announcement. We will vote on that at the business meeting this month, which will be not next Sunday, but the week after next Sunday. I wasn't going to make you guys get all gussied up because I didn't want to make Denny have to move around any more than necessary. So, um, so if, you, if you got a reason why we shouldn't let him in, you're, you're on a clock, okay? You only got two weeks. So if you're going to find up all the dirt, now's the time to find it. So we'll go... Are they Packer fans? That's your only qualification? <laughs> well, we no, no, we don't need more of them. You're obnoxious enough. <laughs> and I don't even have a dog in this fight. I'm from Connecticut, so <laughs> I, I grew up a Jets fan. How miserable do I have it? So exactly, I'm telling you. Uh-oh, one more thing. What is it? Okay, Vern found us online. Hi, Vern. You didn't freeze to death. Good job. <laughs> I was still looking to look for him, you know, check ditches and scan on my way home, you know. All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you and ask that as we leave this place that our joy would be made complete, that we would stand strong in this world, rejoicing in your great salvation, sharing the love that is in us because of your work. In Christ's name we pray, amen.